So my name is Jim. I'm actually the director of the men's program at Keswick. It's called the Colony of Mercy. Uh, and the Colony of Mercy has actually been around since 1897. So we'll be celebrating 126 years uh, of addiction recovery with the men's program. And just to share a little bit uh, with you of how Ali and I uh, ended up at Keswick is 10 years ago, actually this time of year, uh, on actually on May 2nd, 2013, uh, I entered the Colony of Mercy uh, as a resident. Uh, I, I, I was 29 years old and I found myself just in a life-dominating addiction to alcohol. Alcohol had stripped me of everything in life. I showed up at the campus of America's Keswick uh, jobless, penniless, friendless, you know, no place to live, homeless, and really showed up with a, um, uh, a very bitter and angry heart. I was very angry with the Lord. I actually was trying to, uh, I had grown up going to church and knew the Lord, loved the Lord. As, as a teenager, I wanted to serve, serve the Lord with my life. Uh, and then I went away to college and got caught up in the world. And, and a decade later, I just found myself broken, alone, and bitter. And I showed up to the Colony of Mercy uh, really with the attitude of, I'm going to prove this place wrong. I'm going to prove how this is not going to work. Uh, and God did an amazing thing, and he met me in my brokenness. And he met me uh, in my bitterness and in my anger, and he softened my heart with his love and really, that is, that is what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so I, I want to start out uh, just by laying some groundwork on, on where we're going today. I thought last week, uh, Scott really did an amazing job going through Psalm 34. Uh, and and we when we think about the, the troubles of life, when, we, when the troubles of life come, I think a lot of our tendencies is to really want to know what we need to do. I need to find out uh, what I, I need to do. And I thought Scott did an amazing job of showing us that in the midst of trouble, in the, in the midst of difficulty, uh, to take our focus on, off of what we need to do and, and our focus be put on who God is. And so we're going to go down a similar path this morning. And the, the Psalms really are a blessing. In the Psalms, we are able to see uh, a wide array, uh, array of human feelings, uh, given concrete expression. We're able to see those feelings expressed. We're, we're given a blueprint on how to take our emotions and, and bring them before God. We are, we are given language to address God and give thanks and praise, uh, but we're also given ways to, to bring him our feelings of desolation or despair or, or overwhelming guilt from the sin in our life. And in our time together this morning, we are going to see how we talk with God about our guilt and shame. How do I interact with God about the areas I, of sin I still struggle with? I think the bigger question this psalm answers and what, we're going to, and what we're, we need to see is what, what is God's response to our sin? When I'm just up to my eyeballs in sin, what is God's posture towards me? Let me ask you this, if you were alone in this room right now, and as you were sitting here, Jesus walked into the room and he stood before you, what would his posture be like towards you? 
knowing the thoughts that you had this morning, knowing the thoughts that you had this week, knowing the thoughts that you had this month, knowing the ways that you've spoken to your spouse, spoken to your children, knowing what's on your browser history, how does Jesus respond to you? Are his arms crossed? Does his face have a scowl? Is he shaking his head in disappointment? Does he keep his distance from you? Take a second and be honest with yourself. What is his posture towards you? I grew up going to church. I knew the gospel. I comprehended that Jesus died for my sins, uh, that he lived the life that I could not live, that he died the death that I deserved. Uh, I knew that it was not my good works or anything that I did that made me right with God. And I would, I would verbally tell you, I would, I would verbally say that God loved me. But deep down, I really just believe that God tolerated me. When I looked at the sin that was still in my life, my goodness, when I considered the thoughts that I still had, I thought God just must, must be looking down on me with his arms crossed and just shaking his head. And I wonder if there's people in this room this morning that are feeling that right now. You've grown up in church your whole life. You know all the right Sunday school answers. You would even say that God loves you, but you operate as if God is just annoyed by all your failures and all your sinfulness. When you think about how much you struggle, what do you believe about God and his love towards you. In the face of our sinfulness, how can we approach God? How do we reconcile our sinfulness with a holy and righteous God? How can we find hope in the midst of our brokenness? Well, this morning, my hope for us is that we can look into this psalm and see that in our brokenness, God does not move away from us or stand at a distance, but he moves in close. We are going to see as the psalmist comes to grip with his own sinfulness that he's not met with God's distance, but he's met with forgiveness, he's met with steadfast love, and he's met with plentiful redemption. And so this morning we're going to dive into Psalm 30, uh, which is a, a, a penitential psalm, uh, or, which just means it's a psalm of penance. And you'll see that in, in your Bibles, it actually calls it a song of ascent. And all that really means, and I just learned this this week, I, didn't, I never knew what that meant. It, it actually means that this is one of the songs that people would sing on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, for the Jewish festivals. And so this is one of the songs they would sing on their way up to Jerusalem. And so I'm going to read the, song, the psalm again. Psalm 130, if you have your Bibles. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And so the psalm begins with the psalmist crying out to God. He says, out of the depths, out of the depths. And this is really where we need to begin. If we are going to find hope, if we are going to find healing, we need to have an accurate view of ourselves. We need to see our need accurately. And the psalmist says, out of the depths. The psalmist is fully aware of his dire situation. How aware of your neediness are you this morning? Uh, the word depths here conjures up a, the image of being underwater, uh, of being beneath the sea. Uh, I read one commentator this week that compared it to Jonah not only being beneath the sea, but, it, but being in the belly of the fish. This is desperation. Uh, the psalmist sees his sin and in verse 3, we, we, we see that he's aware of God's holiness, and it, and it creates in him such a despair. And his only recourse is to cry out for mercy. He calls out from the depths, and he begs God to hear his cry. He says, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This is a cry of desperation. And I'm convinced that we hold ourselves back spiritually and we lose traction with our fight against sin because we just don't view ourselves as desperate. We don't see mercy as being the thing that we ultimately need. We want to try harder. We want to do better. We want to white knuckle our way into relationship with God instead of entering through the door of mercy. And when I was poring over this passage this week, I couldn't help but think, of the blind man that we see in Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 9, Jesus passes by this blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus is desperate to see. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone in the crowd that's around him is, is telling him to keep quiet, to, to, stop, to stop crying out. But this causes him just to cry out all the more. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Bartimaeus was desperate to see, and his only hope was the mercy of Jesus. When is the last time in your sin that you've had this response? To see yourself accurately and to desperately cry out for mercy. There's a helpful book by Dane Ortland that I've, I've used in my personal life. I've used it with the men of the colony, and I've used it with my colony staff. And the, the book is called Deeper, A Real Change for Real Sinners. I, I would highly recommend it. Uh, good news, if you're not much of a reader, there's actually a, an even shorter abridged version called How Does God Change Us? And in the book, uh, Dane Ortland contends that the pathway to joy, the pathway to growth is through the door of healthy despair. And I'm just going to read you a, a quote from this book. <clears throat> he says, Let your emptiness humble you. 
Let it take you down. The pattern of the Christian life is not a straight line up to resurrection existence, but a curve down into death and thereby up into resurrection existence. And one thing that means is that we go through life with an ever-deepening sense of how reprehensible in ourselves we really are. Repent. See your profound poverty. Ask the Lord to forgive your arrogance. As you descend down into death, into the knowledge of the futility of what inner change you can achieve by your own efforts, it is there, right there, in that dismay and in that emptiness that God lives. Our response to our sin shouldn't be to hide or to try to clean ourselves up, but to cry out for mercy. It's when we see our need accurately that we will cry out to the Lord for his help. But despair is not where we stay. Uh, Dane Ortland goes on to say that healthy despair is an intersection, not a highway. A gateway, not a pathway. We must go there, but we dare not stay there. The Bible teaches rather that each experience of despair is to melt us fresh into deeper fellowship with Jesus. This despair allows us to encounter our Savior rightly. Those who view themselves as small sinners will view Jesus as a small Savior. It's only when I see myself as a great sinner that I'm able to be in awe of Jesus as a great Savior. The psalmist then goes on to show us that in the face of our sinfulness, in the midst of our despair, God is not distant, he is not aloof, his face doesn't wear a scowl, his arms are not crossed. In our despair, God moves towards us with forgiveness. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist asks a question. If God kept a count of iniquities, if he kept a tally of our sin, who could stand? Well, the answer to that question is no one. Do you see how this levels the playing field? There is not a single person in this room that could stand. We are all this needy. And in this need, what is God's response? Forgiveness. But with you, there is forgiveness. God moves towards us with forgiveness. And I think we get a picture of God's heart in this in John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 8. Now, I just want to encourage us this morning as we read familiar passages like the one we're going we're gonna to read is to, to slow down as we read it to read in such a way in which we encounter Jesus. Read in such a way that we encounter his mercy. Read in such a way that we encounter his grace, that we see his compassion. And, and I think we, we miss this because when we know the story, uh, we tend to place ourselves in the story where we just don't belong. Uh, and we miss Jesus if, if we don't allow the scripture to, to show us ourselves. And so John chapter 8, I'm going to start reading in verse 2. 
Early in the morning, he, that being Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in in his midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And so in this story, Jesus is in the temple, and the scribes and Pharisees throw this woman caught in adultery before him. And I want to make this abundantly clear this morning. We are this woman. She was caught in the act, guilty. Uh, Her accusers in the story don't even see her as a person, but as a way which they could trap Jesus. And they use the law to heap guilt and to heap shame on her. Could you imagine in this moment what she was feeling? The shame the fear. Maybe some of you are, are sitting in that shame here this morning. Maybe you are continually believing the accusations of the enemy. Your sin has deceived you into thinking that Jesus, in disgust, would give you over to be stoned. And we have this moment, this, this courtroom-type scene that the psalmist is describing. We have this woman in her sinfulness standing before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, standing before the only one who is able to cast judgment. And what does she receive? Mercy. O Lord, if you counted our iniquities, who could stand? The psalmist says, with you there is forgiveness. With Christ there is forgiveness. It's not that Jesus diminishes her sin or excuses her sin. It's that on the cross, he pays for them fully and completely. And Christian, he has done the same for you. With him, there is forgiveness. When we are exposed in our sin, when shame and guilt are weighing heavy, God moves towards us in forgiveness. Let this truth wash over you this morning, allow it to wash away your shame. God, God does not count our iniquities against us because they have been accounted to Christ. Hear Jesus say to you this morning, has nobody condemned you? Neither do I. What this means is that we can now be honest about our sin. We can drag our sin into the light and experience the forgiveness That is ours. Then in our despair, God moves towards us 
with steadfast love. Verse 7 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And steadfast love is really something that our, our, our English language doesn't have a good word for. Uh, you'd, you'll see steadfast love, you'll see loving kindness. Uh, it's the Hebrew word hesed, and, and it's, it's completely undeserved kindness, it's, it's completely undeserved uh, generosity, but it's so much more than that. Uh, hesed is an action, it, 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 it intervenes on behalf of the loved one, it, it comes to their rescue, but it's more than that. Steadfast love, it's an enduring love. It never diminishes, it never weakens, it never retreats, it's never tainted. Uh, Look right at me this morning. You cannot sin enough to remove God's love from you. You cannot sin enough in volume, you cannot sin enough in grandeur to dampen God's steadfast love for you. When I think of God's steadfast love, I can't help but think about the story of the prodigal son. And what's ironic is that one of the ways we, we tend to read this story and interpret this story is that we, we make the focus on the, the sons in the story. Uh, it's even called the prodigal son. Uh, but the beauty of this story that we find in Luke chapter 15 has nothing to do with the two sons and everything to do with the father who loves both of his wayward boys. It's the love of the Father in this story that should captivate us and stir our hearts in affection towards God. And so in the story, Jesus tells of this man who's had two sons. And Jesus tells us in verse 12 of Luke 15, he says, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And so this younger son comes to his dad and and essentially says, uh, you know, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead so I could just have my inheritance. Just give me my inheritance now. And the father complies. And and we really need to understand that this this would have been a process. Uh, This wasn't him going to the bank and making a a transfer. Uh, The father had to liquidate livestock, liquidate land. This was a, a process and this was a public process. It would have brought humiliation and shame to this family. And the son takes his money and he heads off to a far country. And the Bible tells us that he squanders all that he had with reckless living. So he takes his dad's inheritance and he just leaves and just wastes it all. The son goes and spends all his inheritance on what the world has to offer. He searches for fulfillment in every other place, but in relationship to his father. He ends up spending all that he had, and then a famine hits, and the son begins to be in need. Things go from bad to worse, and he ends up feeding pigs for a living. Verse 16 tells us that things got so bad that he begins to long for the pods that he's feeding the pigs. He was yearning over pig slop. And it's in this despair that he remembers his father. Verse 17 says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The son remembers his father, and he comes up with this plan. He comes up with this, this plan to return and to ask his dad to become one of his hired servants. Uh, for sure he knew that in light of all that he had done, in the way he disrespected his father, took his stuff, wasted it all, he knew that he was going to have to work his way back into his father's good graces. And so the son drafts this whole spiel that he's going to say to his dad when he returns. And, and I'm sure on the journey home, he's rehearsing it over in his head of how this interaction is going to go. And in verse 20 of Luke 15, we get a picture of the steadfast love of God. And it says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and for you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Here we have a picture of God's steadfast love in action. A picture of this undeserved kindness. A picture of this undeserved generosity. We see a love that has not been diminished. We see a love that has not been weakened. We see a love that has not been tainted. The son's waywardness in no way deterred the steadfast love of his father. The father's love never wavered. It never weakened. It was never tainted. It was no way diminished. His love endured and, and out of it flowed undeserved kindness. And out of it flowed undeserved generosity. This love responded not with distance but with rescue. The son was still a long way off. The father was looking for him, was waiting for him. He saw him and had compassion on him. It says that the father ran to his son. It would have been shameful for a Jewish man to run, and the father pays it no mind. Nothing would come between him and his son. And the son tries to begin his servant speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, and his father's just having none of it. He says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And he declares to his son, he declares to everyone who is there watching that every aspect of his sonship has been restored, even the inheritance that he so callously squandered. And so the question needs to be asked, do you believe that God loves you in this way? Do you? God's love is so much deeper, so much higher, so much wider than we can even comprehend. And it's as we wade into its immensity, as we begin to comprehend it, that we are changed. That's why when the Apostle Paul, as he's praying for spiritual strength for the Ephesians, 
says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How are we filled with the fullness of God? By knowing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, by beginning to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth of God's love for us. We don't gather here week in and week out to learn what God wants from our lives. Our main purpose for gathering as a body of believers is not to obtain our marching orders. We gather here each week to dive into the inexhaustible well that is God's love for us and then be changed by it. And I think we get distracted from this because we are too busy trying to come back to our dad's house as his servants. Like the son on his way back home, we have this distorted view of our father's love for us And so we can only fathom that he would accept us as as servants. And in our own effort, we try to change our behavior and we try to follow the rules and we never allow ourselves to experience the radical love of our Father that will actually change us. And we live these bipolar Christian lives uh, because deep down we actually believe that God's love and acceptance for us is based on our performance as his servants. And we will never have the peace we are so desperate for if we don't understand that God's love for me is unchanged by my performance. And so I'd ask you this morning, are you trying to rest in your own effort? Or are you resting in the steadfast love of God as a son? Christian, you are his child You are his son. You are his daughter. Nothing you do or don't do can remove that love from your life. And we need this. We need to believe. We need this in our guts. We need this deep in our bones. The rest of your Christian life should be exploring the depths of God's love for you. The son thought that true life could be found in the world. It took him coming to a place of deep despair, coming to a place of emptiness, The Bible says that he came to the end of himself. You know, the end of yourself is the best place you could be. Because it's when we come to the end of ourselves that we finally realize that true life can only be found in relationship with our Father. And then finally, in our despair, God moves towards us with plentiful redemption. Verse 7 goes on to say, For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I said at the beginning that our biggest need is for God's mercy, and I have some good news for us this morning. Our God is rich in mercy. There is no lack 
God does not reach a limit in his ability or willingness to redeem. Ephesians chapter 2 gives us a glimpse of how God's mercy operates. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And I always like to point out that when the Apostle Paul goes about telling us who we are in Christ, he always begins by reminding us of who we were. Uh, Look at what he says. He, He says, we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And this really hammers home one of our first points. God's mercy doesn't clean up messy people. His mercy raises dead people. We are dead, utterly helpless. This is the work of God's mercy. And we tend to have this idea that God has an amount of mercy stored up. And as we sin, we draw on that reserve of mercy But mercy isn't something that God has. Mercy is who he is. So when God pours out mercy on us, he's giving us his very self. And this is the work of Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. God comes down. Jesus is mercy personified. And Jesus gives us all of himself. And we see that that in a verse that Pastor John brings to us often in Philippians 2. They have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Because Jesus is God, because God doesn't have mercy, he is mercy, Jesus pours out mercy by emptying himself. He poured himself out for us, taking on the form of a servant for you and for me. Let this create an awe in you that stirs your affection for Jesus. What this means is that we can never, ever exhaust his mercy. My job lends itself to meeting with people who just have, who just think they have outsinned the mercy of God. They believe God is merciful, but they look at their life and they look at their choices and they look at the wreckage that, that they've caused through drinking or through drugs or through pornography and they think, I've gone too far. I've squandered too much. And maybe that's you this morning. And, and, and don't dismiss that so quickly Uh, Really examine your heart. I I have found that it is the church people 
uh, people who know their Bibles, who come into our programs and struggle with this the most. Maybe you believe God is merciful, but you have exceeded the mercy that any one person should get. Well, let me ask you a question that I've borrowed from Dane Orland, and I frequently ask the men in our program. The question is this. Do you know what Jesus does with those who squander his mercy? He pours out more mercy. You know why? Because he's rich in mercy. Redeemer Fellowship, do you believe that this is how God moves towards you in your sin? I want to close with a quote from the book Gentle and Lowly. As I read this quote, I want you to close your eyes. Nothing weird is going to happen. No one's going to come take your stuff. But I just want you to listen as I read these words and, and ask yourself, do you believe this? And then we'll pray. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. I'm going to read that line again. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on, on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. Father, we love you and we thank you. Lord, we are in awe of your mercy this morning. Lord, I pray for each of us that as we examine ourselves, Lord, that we would see ourselves accurately. Lord, that we'd be honest that we are just, we are more than just a few tweaks away from nailing it, Lord, that we are in desperate need of your rescue. Lord, but I pray that we don't stay there, that we look to you and we see your ability, we see your willingness, we see your love towards us and your ability to, to rescue and to redeem and to restore, to forgive, to pour out your steadfast love. Lord, I pray that as we encounter you rightly, as we see how you move towards us, not away from us, that that would change us. Lord, it says you offer, with you there's forgiveness so that you may be feared. We change because you are a forgiving God.
Because while we were still a long way off, you saw us and had compassion. Lord, may that change our hearts this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.